0: Why was she murdered?
1: Diane Fossey fell in love with the gorillas, and fell out of love with her own tribe, the, uh, which, in her case, meant the, the the pressure, the human pressure on her gorillas. On her, she very much identified with with trying to save these animals. In the next two days, we went up to the research station with uh, her casket, and she was buried in in a graveyard that she had created for her poached gorillas. And there are pictures of mine of her casket covered with flowers. And across the Telex feed, my photos went out around the world, and, and I can't really know how many papers pick them up.
0: It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. choose something that even if, it fails, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beat. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your (laughs) gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard from Brendan Kelly describing the lead-up to the murder of American conservationist Diane Fossey in Rwanda. Employing rigorous anti-poaching methods towards the end of her life, Fossey made more than a few enemies. But how do Fawzi's and Breton's stories connect? Well, we'll get to that later. Let's introduce Breton first. He's the treasurer and advocacy director of Quail Springs Permaculture, living far away from Africa in SoCal's Kuyama Valley. There, he helps advocate for sustainable groundwater policies in the region's wetlands and works to include earthen building materials in California's outdated building code. To get an up and close look at Breton's unusual lifestyle and find answers to some of my burning questions, I traveled a few hours outside of Los Angeles to stay a couple days at Quail Springs. I arrived late at night and found that here, immersed in this remote farmland, stars were much brighter and the mornings were full of new experiences, including squeezing goat milk right from the teats into a cup of coffee. After we got settled, Brenton, a couple dozen goats, and I traveled a few miles from the homestead to begin the interview surrounded by nature.
1: I was born in Northern Rhodesia, and celebrated my first independence at my first birthday when Northern Rhodesia became Zambia. Also lived in the Congo and Senegal and Nigeria and East Africa and Kenya.
0: So you bounced like all around Africa.
1: A couple of years at a time, and and we would live in country in in Lusaka or Kinshasa or Nairobi, and I'd go to to an American school in country, and my father would travel, you know, the his beat around that portion of Africa, coming home regularly, and. We could track his activities by listening to The Voice of America that night and know whether he was in Uganda or Ethiopia. And so while my father was off, you know, earning the income and covering the, the, the war stories, my mother and my brother and I would, um, would take off in her little convertible Peugeot. This is in Nigeria in 66. During the weekend, we would pack up like a frozen orange juice bottle and some sandwiches, drive down the end of what I thought was the end of any random road. And when we got there, there would be a little community, a little town, a dot on the map with an interesting name. Often at the end of the road, there'd be a a marketplace and there would be a community event going on where all sorts of individuals were selling their wares, much of which were produced um, in their homes and in their bandas in their farms around their homes, and um, there was an exchange going on, often um, without coin. It's not true barter, it's credit, not debt. So credit is, I know I've got a patch of corn growing, but it's going to be ripe in two months, and you've got a patch of yams that need to be eaten today. I'll eat your yams if you'll help me eat my corn come fall. That's a credit system where we don't have to exchange coin, but we get our needs met, as a relationship. So we would have our picnic and sit in the shade of the market trees and watch these incredibly colorful events take place.
0: Everything you mentioned sounds idyllic, but you're also in fairly unstable countries. Can you speak to some of those experiences of maybe like the instability of sometimes growing up in places like this?
1: In general, the atmosphere was one of... Of independence, revolution. So, so the instability was in many ways um, a positive thing, because it was overcoming colonialism. So, when when Northern Rhodesia became Zambia, it was a great celebration, even though it involved soldiers on the streets with guns that killed people. I was fairly sheltered from the militarized side of it, however. We went to schools that were compounds that had guards, and there were soldiers on street corners and at checkpoints that had real guns. And the, the use of weaponry was always something of a tool of, of control for me, witnessing. You know, that, that's why there were guns in the world. In Asia, we lived in, in Thailand, in Bangkok, when you know, the conflict was over in Vietnam.
0: Yeah, can you tell me about moving over there?
1: It was just one of the many, so we were coming from from our post in washington d c and going to a new home and a new school and this one was in seventy one in Bangkok was um you know it was Bangkok was pretty well built up from the military industrial complex. The school that I went to was a huge campus um, for elementary and high school, and all of my classmates were Americans whose parents were officers, not enlisted men who could have their families in country so you know we were in country for two and a half years i would make friends the first year and then they would leave that next year and so there was never kind of much of the consistency of what it meant to be in a hometown you know in the case of of not having a lot of childhood friends i learned very well how to be my own best friend and that's not a skill set that you get easily um or one that one would choose to pursue if given the option of having a lot of close friends. However, I see that as an asset. I I don't depend on my relationships for my own identity, yet I treasure them.
0: But eventually, I mean, like, you move from these intact cultures back to the U.S. I know you were, like, kind of, like, going in and out of Washington, D.C., but you did eventually go to high school in D.C. and I can imagine that like the U.S. felt a lot different from the other places you had lived.
1: What struck me in the States was literally that in Thailand and in the Congo, there were multiple sources of water that were uh, a spectrum from salty dishwater to relatively clean, clear bathwater to cooking water to actually drinking water. That you could drink pure, and those went through a variety of of different sources. Like they weren't all from the same place. Some of it was purchased, some of it was filtered, some of it was boiled. And you would never trust that a faucet delivered a specific thing, or that even if you turned the faucet on, or tried to flush the toilet, or fill up the bath, that there'd be water there at that time to do it.
0: But in DC, it was always there.
1: It was you threw the switch, and the light would come on. You you have water at the kitchen sink, you knew it was drinking water.
0: What did that feel like for you?
1: My parents had drilled into me, pay attention to where your source is so that you know you're drinking good water and don't drink any of this bad stuff. And then I get to this place where everybody can always assume by way of paying taxes that they don't have to think about that. They don't have to think about where the water comes from, where the electricity comes from, where the waste goes to, any of those things.
0: So that I think like on an individual and structural level, like obviously big change, but on a social level, what were the people that you were encountering like, and also like, how do you identify with the people that live in the States?
1: Uh, My high school experience was at a small private school. So I didn't go to the public school and, and most of the students were also international and diplomatic. So there was unique perspectives amongst my peers, not your standard you know, midwesterner perspective. I had some neat friends, but my experience through high school was, you know, I could blame my youth experience overseas as, you know, disruptive to my academic development to some degree. Yes. But by the time I got to high school, it was evident that I wasn't um, where my peers were. And part of that was dyslexia, a learning disability that had not been diagnosed. And so dyslexia is is a fabulous gift that gives the individual even more of a unique perspective on the world, and I think we all have um, a spectrum on that where our senses are able to pick up the world the way our neurons are able to, and that's very unique between individuals so even the same environment that we may grow up with, the same social feedbacks that we may you know be be exposed to we are all going to have our own unique experience there and we and and it was very much uh, brought to my attention with my parents and overseas and cultural sensitivity to the religions and the the practices of of in country that everything is valid.
0: How are you starting to think about college and your life moving forward in a world that is that is standardized tests that is a lot of reading that is just like a systems and organizationally. Like-
1: when I think back at that period, I think much more fondly and deeply about my relationships with my teachers than with my peers. They knew what they were working with. They knew my history. By the time I graduated, I had been in one place for 5 years, the longest I'd ever lived anywhere for those in this one school. And the school was small enough and liberal enough that, you know, we we called our professors by their first name, and my first teacher always had an open door To me, walking into her office to talk. And I had classes that were extremely challenging. And then I would have a class where the professor really thrilled me. Um, I'm not a math student, and I loved geometry, and I loved my geometry teacher. And I loved the fact that, you know, two dots define a line. That's not math, that's real. You know, two lines that intersect define an angle. That's measurable, that's real. And then I also think I fell in love with my biology. And she helped me kind of master the test-taking skill requirements of the field and the memorization of biology, along with the, the pure joy of, of learning life science. And so she taught in an AP advanced placement biology class that she uh, insisted I take, and she helped me take the AP tests and get good scores on my test. By accommodating my dyslexia, it was a very fortunate opportunity to go to the school I did. And I couldn't find that when I went to college.
0: How did you think about college? Did you apply to a bunch of ones?
1: Well, my father had entered the Foreign Service from California. He was born and raised here. So I could get state resident tuition. So I knew I was going to California and I applied to several of the UC systems. My dad had done undergraduate work at UC Berkeley. So he was thrilled for me to apply to Berkeley. And as alumni, he was happy to support that endeavor. And I had traveled around the world quite a bit to recognize that Santa Barbara has got a lot of those most beautiful aspects of the planet. And they had a a really good aquatic biology department, which is what I thought I was uh, gonna be pursuing. Once I got to college, a couple of things happened. One was I I fell in love with photography and started um, working at the local newspaper. And then another thing was I got um, recruited out of the meal line while I was waiting for breakfast by a very short person who was the coxswain for the varsity rowing boat. And the next morning I was out rowing and uh, rowing, which involved, you know, sitting on my butt and going backwards every morning was the best way I found to get through college. Why? Because it gave me an accomplishment that I could get done by nine o'clock classes that exceeded what most people did in the daytime. just this summer we had a 40th anniversary of the 1982 editorial board of the daily
0: nexus and that's the paper that that you're doing
1: that's the newspaper and one of the unique things that we all shared was that many folks in that newsroom felt that they were adrift and couldn't find their tribe Hmm. until they walked into that newsroom
0: did you feel the same way
1: very much so. The photo editor that got me on board, that you know, got me into being a photo editor the next year, and that I mentored the assistant editor and, and Muda, that was an incredible batch of people. Similarly, focused on a mission, which was this little daily rag that came out every day that needed a pretty picture to make it look good and support the journalists who were putting it together. And ironically though, Santa Barbara doesn't have a journalism department. So there were no professors in the room. There were no grades being put on the articles and the paper and the, the photos or any of the content. There were a handful of professionals who made sure that the ads were sold that paid mm-hmm. for everything. But none of the activity contributed to the graduation of any of the students.
0: So just for the pure love of it.
1: And, and a little bit of beer money. You know, when you're an editor, you, you got a stipend. Yeah. But I learned that I could take my graphic art from that I had been paid to shoot and put on the front page or the cover page of the arts and entertainment section or some of there, there are a lot of creative things. I could take it across the quad to the art department and take a class in printmaking Hmm. and make a lithograph out of this photo or this photo montage or something and print it out on a, a limestone slate and pull prints off of it and get a grade for that. And I graduated in art studio.
0: Two for the price of one.
1: Yep. I was able to sit on my ass and go backwards on the rowing team and take pictures all day, and then make art studio prints and lithographs and and silk screens. And and that was you know kind of identified with my father. I, you know, yeah, identifying journalism and and you know it was like one of the things I loved doing was, um, you know, in the early 80s, Diablo Canyon nuclear uh, facility was just coming online. And there was great protests because, you know, it's built right on fault lines and they used the plans upside down when they built it. And a very s- number of, of substantial issues that were coming up um, before commissioning of it. And um, there were a number of, of actions to block the entrance. And a bunch of my friends would participate. And so we would drive up there and my friends would, you know get their placards out and, and, and stand in line and they'd get rounded up by the police and I'd be there taking pictures of them and take pictures of them. You know, I have a press pass so I could be behind the line, taking pictures of them being put in the buses and handing off and waving goodbye. And then I get to cross over the line and go back to the office and print that picture and get them on the front page the next day while they spent the night in jail. Wow. I get to sleep in my bed.
0: So as you were graduating from UCSB, where do you take these skills?
1: Well, another great fortune of my timing. Shortly after graduating, I went back to Africa to visit my father. Mm. Why Ooh. did you go? He was um, living in Kigali, Rwanda. And the day I arrived in Kigali, which is a little town in Rwanda that has one flight at that point, one flight a week coming out of Nairobi in, into country and they only access and the, the day I flew was the day that Diane Fossey was murdered up at her uh, research camp at Karasoki in the Ronzoris of the Mountain Gorilla Territory of Rwanda. Can you tell me who Diane Fossey is? Diane Fossey was one of the three primate women that Louis Leakey, uh, the National Geographic anthropologist, set up to study the three most closely related primates to humans. The chimpanzee, and we know Jane Goodall, um, Diane Fossey was, was set up with the mountain gorillas in Rwanda. Why was she murdered? Diane Fossey fell in love with the gorillas and fell out of love with her own tribe. The, uh, which in her case meant the, the, the pressure, the human pressure on her gorillas on her, she very much identified with, with trying to save these animals. And, um, there was not d- so much direct pressure against the gorillas as much as, the need for poaching bushmeat by the locals to feed themselves. So she was taking very personally something that was, um, was, you know, a a hard to avoid situation with a hungry population and a, and a nature reserve full of,
0: of food. So basically like her advocacy was upsetting the uh, people who needed just basic needs. Yep. She made a few enemies.
1: I arrived in Kigali with my father being a freelance retired journalist. We were able, in the, in the next two days, we went up to the research station with uh, her casket. She had been brought down to Kigali and then taken back up to her research station when it was determined that that's where she would remain. And we escorted her into the to the Roranzori's, uh, she was portered in on the back of eight of her trackers and and staff of the of the research station, and she was buried in in a graveyard that she had created for her poached gorillas. And there are pictures of mine of her casket covered with flowers that we brought up.
0: So you took pictures of the casket.
1: I, I escorting. I was the only photographer in the in the procession, if we would call it that. It was quite a hike to get up into the, to the research. There's no road up there.
0: When you took those pictures, did you realize what the significance of what you were capturing?
1: Um, yeah, I was able to realize it. And when I arrived in Kigali, I said, Diane who? And, but that was what was happening. It was like, uh, it, it was an international issue. She was an American. No one knew whether she was going to, be going back to America, you know, in a casket or what? And the embassy was very much involved, and my father was involved with the embassy.
0: And so, when you are capturing this, you you realize you are capturing something important. But like, like, where do you think this photo is going?
1: Well, the next the next steps were um, thanks to my father. He had a colleague in Kenya at the Associated Press who had agreed to um, take his story, the written story of of what was happening because he was the only journalist putting that out and then he said go meet my his his other daughter who was you know this was right after new year so she was returning she was she was 13 my sister returning to to europe to go back to school flew out of kigali at the next flight two days after the funeral and carried my film to nairobi and handed it over to the associated press and so that then goes out on the on the wire which any newspaper around the world can register with the wire and they get a feed of of the international news photos that ap is putting out and across the telex feed my photos went out around the world and and i can't really know how many papers pick them up and and my i think it was twenty dollars a photo so i got a hundred dollars check from the ap wire photo uh for these photos (laughs) that went around the world a hundred dollars wow!
0: because there were four photos yeah. But
1: the real goal mine there was that they had put my name on the
0: credit. Yeah. Did it change your view of pursuing photography professionally?
1: I, I think it, it certainly did. I I continued my travels around Africa with my camera bag and dragging, you know, this equipment all around the place, knowing that, wow, what's the likelihood of ever being in the right place at the right time like that? Something was happening that no one else was going to capture. You know, will I get it right? Will it be meaningful? What will it do and but realizing that I can't count on a business where I can be pulling that off. I love my camera. I t- love taking good pictures. But wow, that's that's not really gonna pay for my flight back home.
0: And then so it just didn't seem attainable. So when you did go back home, how did you get involved uh, with the parks agency? So
1: I went went back to Isla Vista, with a community next to the camp, the university where I went. What prompted the the move back? The contacts that I had. My junior year, I moved into a group house. It was the first sort of real communal with a a number of folks, uh, mostly students, um, but also Matt Buckmaster, who's my business partner at Island Seed and Feed. We were college roommates back then. So coming back, staying with him, we had a beautiful garden, and I I loved to see my garden. I had never had a garden until then, and then when you leave a garden that you've been deeply rooted into – Even when you're traveling through amazing places on the other side of the world, you think back to that tomato that you plant and go, oh, my tomatoes are doing. How's that garlic getting on? Oh, my God, I want to see my garden and that kind of attachment to that place. So I was very attracted back to Isla Vista. And Matt at the time had just started to supervise the Isla Vista street sweeping program which is a, a trash pickup program and I got in on that really fell in love with with picking up trash. Matt and I still pick up trash once a month. It's a re- very rewarding activity. But I um I started working with the park district there and then got into the grounds management side of things where we were we were tending the parks and building the facilities
0: and and maintaining them. So as you got more involved in this life with the parks did photography take a backseat? It certainly did. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I uh, picked up a different tool belt, gained a lot of different skill
0: sets like tractoring. Was that hard to give up or was it, did it feel like a next step?
1: It felt like a next step. I felt like I had done the type of photography that I really loved doing. And, and for me that in the at uh, the nexus was working in the black and white darkroom mm. and he now at that point there was only black and white on the newspaper and now there's color and now it's all digital and it's a different world and I knew at the time that I wouldn't enjoy that as much I wouldn't be able to mix up fixer and those stinky chemicals and dump <laughs> them down the drain and yeah. deal with you know silver nitrate which is not great stuff so mm. I, I had a conflict in my own mind about my organic interests and dealing with these chemicals and go well it sure makes sense to not to go digital but I don't think that that that's what I want to
0: do. So as you went into the parks area, was it all smooth sailing? I had a little over 10 years working there and I came
1: in and it was golden. It was great. My boss was amazing. The organization was really smooth and a bunch of friends worked together. And shortly after getting, you know, full-time employment there, um, there was a political change in, at the board of directors. Fired the GM that hired me and installed someone who was much more difficult to work with. And when
0: you say difficult, do you mean like an asshole or do you mean like...
1: <laughs> to be generous to the man, he had great mechanical intelligence and not much social intelligence or, you know, the compassionate way is to say, you know, um, emotional intelligence, I should say. So as, a, as an engineer, he was great at, at one end of his job, but he didn't know how to work with people, plants, children. And how did that show up? That showed up um, in a number of ways that really upset people. You know, a lot of uh, by the books, the grounds crew was um, contracted out to a private enterprise. And so, like, he's just
0: taking away jobs from people.
1: And and trying to save money because he represented the property owners who Uh. didn't like the fact that the park district was riding an enterprise on their tax dollars.
0: When do you end up leaving and how?
1: It was difficult for me. Because I I actually succeeded in in outliving that particular general manager, and but at the same time early on I had started to actually develop a, a physical back ailment that was that was work related, and at one point I was quite debilitated and and got into therapy and had a lunch date with my physician at a brown bag lunch at the hospital where a bunch of back folks talk about things. Uh, case, kind of case review. And and they all suggested this condition that I'd never heard of that they all seemed to know about called the Paul Bunyan syndrome. Well, the, the physical levering over a longer body length creates a condition that may have helped me rowing tremendously. It's a tall man sport, but was a disadvantage when I was lifting a trash can out of a trash can holder because my arms are straight out. The heavier lift is a much more um, impact on the lower back. So I was actually told that I was in the wrong business, even though I loved my job. So you had to leave. I kind of like said, I have to find a way out of here.
0: And I I'd love to actually, I mean, take this, this pivot, getting back together with your, your old friend, Matt Buckmaster, um, who was your, your, you know, college roommate
1: who had been fired a couple. He was he was a, a grounds manager or grounds worker with me for for many of those years. But he was one of the individuals that lost their job, and so he was doing other work. And one day, he and I were over at um, our local feed store where a dear friend of ours had was running a business that was getting to be about ten years old. Matt and I were both in the store one morning, and we're talking to Phil. No one else is in the store, and Phil's telling us for the first time that Phil and Ellen want to retire. They want to sell the business. And we go, oh my gosh, how, who would you sell it? How would you do that? Because we come here to, to know you and to, this is your place and you're in John. What would John, you know, how would you do this? Who would you sell it? How would you put it on the market? Legitimate like concerns as customers that my, my, my buddy and I were, were presenting in. And, and Phil said, well, we're hoping to sell it to you guys. They had already decided that Matt and I would make perfect owners of their business. And I was still employed at the Park District, and Matt was, was working as a landscaper. And, and we go like, what? And Matt and I look at each other, and we go like, well, that, that could be real. How? So we spent a year, while I was still employed at the Park District, training and working with Phil and learning what the inventory was, looking you know, the cash flow requirements, I went back to school and took an economics course at, uh, at UCSB with all these like future accountants. And I'm just like, what does QuickBook do when I enter this? Like, why do I need to know a balance sheet? What is this? I'm like bonehead. And I'm stepping in as the dyslexic accountant to this. I became the chief financial officer of Island Seed and Feed so after a year, it never went on the market. We, we really just rolled it over. And on January 1st of, of 1999, we exchanged inventory and they opened up the door the next morning under our name.
0: What did that feel like?
1: Oh, that was exciting. It was a whole new world for me. My buddy is an artist. Um, many of my buddies are, but Matt is, a, is an amazing creative artist. He's the, the most socially... Or emotionally intelligent person I know. He can make friends with anybody. I loved the plants in the business, but knew that I didn't want him to be doing the books. Mm. Because as a creative bookkeeper, it would have been done different every month. And I knew that that wasn't the way to do it. And that I should figure out at least a way to do it once correctly and get it done every month correctly and make sure the bills are paid.
0: How does the business develop like towards 2004, 2005?
1: Um, well, the first year was, was a wild one. There was construction going on at the overramp. So it was like one of the monikers of the store is that it's the coolest little hardest to find store on the South Coast. And we are underneath the freeway overpass on a road that nobody knows is under the overpass. And so we're always talking people into how to find the place. But then there's this construction detour It's quite noisy and dangerous. And then this was in 1999. Which, if anybody lived through that era, was the, the great Y2K. And we were a retail store involved with I, I would call it a permaculture store. Uh, it wasn't in our nomenclature, but you know, we sold permaculture literature and we were promoting all the things that fit into permaculture. And, and a lot of that, like, even reasonable members of, of the community were quite fixated with the notion that the world was about to end, and that maybe the dog food wouldn't show up much less um, their resilience, their food resiliency. So, and
0: so they wanted to stock up.
1: They wanted to stock up, including on the garden. Like we had the best garden sales. We sell our own um, seedlings of vegetables. So we're feeding the backyard gardens of Goleta and selling an enormous number of chickens as little baby chicks. Everybody that year thought that it was going to be necessary to have half a dozen birds in their backyard
0: so business was booming
1: business was booming. And it was also, you know, we were looking at each other going like people want to buy like big containers with locking lids for airtight, like, okay, here's a pallet of these things. And they all sold immediately. Like, wow, (laughs) you know, and then on, you know, after a year of of, of running the place, we, we walked in on January 2nd and, and the computer turned on and, and the register turned on, and and the delivery truck showed up, and we kept on working, and there was no Y two K.
0: I'd love to track up to meeting. I think some people that would be important, um, and talking to some people that would be important. Uh, Warren Brush and Paul Swenson.
1: Yeah. Well, my daughter at this point was um was seven or eight, and she's starting to to really love the outdoors, and I we've gone camping a few times and. There's an organization in Goleta called the Wilderness Youth Project that does wilderness awareness, um, nature immersion activities with youth. So I, I was trying to get Iris involved in those programs. And um, I met Warren, the the executive director of Wilderness Youth Project, um, when he came into Island Seed and Feed and, and announced that they had just closed escrow on 450 acres up in the Los Padres back in Cuyama. And the logic there was w- made a lot of sense. Warren said that they had been looking for a, a, a place to go with the kids' programs. That was not just the end of the road campsite that accesses the National forests and all the great playgrounds to take kids, but was a place where you could actually live the experience of a sustainable uh, energy, food, water, shelter situation wanting to take kids to a place where there wasn't just a dumpster that removed things um, or a pit toilet that buried stuff. But that was actually in as intact a sustainable example as possible because the kids were asking for that. Um, and so this property was, was purchased and, and, and Paul Swenson and Warren Brush were the, the, the main um, caretakers with their families.
0: So this was your, your like the first step in.
1: Yeah, actually the first step in was shortly after talking to to Warren and Paul in the parking lot at Island Seed and Feed and saying, well, I wanna get my kid involved. He says, oh, we're doing a the summer program, you know, we can get her in. And the summer program was a two week program where the first week we dropped her off downtown and they picked her up and they went off to all these very cool places around Santa Barbara, the ocean, rock climbing in the hills, rivers, and, you know, backcountry and then they come back and I'd pick her up and and bring her home. And she had a great time with this really cool set of kids with these great mentors and we're doing all this neat stuff. And the second week, I dropped her off on Monday and they got driven out to Quail Springs. And she came back on Friday and that then that weekend there was a family camp mm. where the parents of all the kids involved with the summer programs were welcomed out to Quail Springs for this kind of weekend event and even picking up Iris at that Friday morning before we packed back up and went back out here that she had changed she was this confident beaming she she's the one that said Brenton you you got to check this place out and then to come back right back out and have her show me this place through the eyes of what she had experienced for the week was was transformative in that alone I mean it it had changed it my daughter had had found something in herself that she hadn't seen before. And that was um, what this place could do. It was, uh, the nonprofit was called the True Nature Society, which is a a reflection on our own sort of innate skills and offerings and attractions as individuals of of how we can can rise to meet the world from our own true nature.
0: And so you wanted to get more involved, but I think something that is unique or 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 something that every large piece of land needs to be a sustainable for a group of people is water, right? Um, and at, at this point, um, what was the water situation of, of Quail Springs? Like you said, there was this pond, but was right. it sustainable? The, the,
1: the pond was plumbed um, from the spring. And the spring is about a three quarters, almost a mile up canyon from where the farm and the pond is. It was a trickle in a wallowed out, eroded gully. And this was due to uh, 75 years of cattle management where the cows were just able to sit up in the spring under the cottonwood trees and eat all the green sedge and all the willow sprouts and strip all the leaves off the cottonwood trees as best they could. That caused the water to drain out of the aquifer and looked like the spring was dying. The first thing Quail Springs did was was um, deny the cattle permits and and it started to recover on its own. Um, and it was the beginning of what I my my wife and I truly feel was a uh, a relationship, um, a courtship, a courtship that involved, you know, the work we were doing on the board of directors and the fundraising we were doing to support it. But slowly a courtship between us and the land.
0: And so how did you begin to improve the land? What did you what what did you start to do?
1: You know, I was still uh, working at the business and so we had the obvious ability to help facilitate the food systems. We brought the first clutch of chickens out, planted, we brought all the vegetables for the first garden and and continued to support the the development of the farm and and food systems while while the Paul and, and Warren were were living here and developing the, the water catchment. I, I wasn't as aware of that at the time, um, except that they were able to barely squeak by with, with the volume that they were getting, and we put the tanks in and improved that um,
0: storage capacity. This seems like the homesteading opportunity that you have been waiting for, right? Yeah,
1: but even still, Jan and I, you know, were, had, we're talking on the drive out the day that they asked, and we were like, you know it was becoming obvious in the courtship that something was developing of permanence and it's like could we live here? I was like oh man it's just so hot and there's no no place to live and it's like there's some of the things that over I don't know how they're doing it and like how uncomfortable is that and yeah it is amazing we couldn't at that time convince ourselves that oh we got to we got to talk ourselves into living here it's like yeah, that was not the situation and that it was part of that courtship development and it involved their solicitation like we would like you to come out and help us set up the farm. We'd like you to be farm managers. We need you. And you know, I've I've got a, a kid in middle school, and I've got a, a business. And I was like, well, even if that were a yeah, how would we do that? It's kind of like buying the business. It took more than a year, and I spent the year setting up basically to to divest from from the business. We were we were co-owners, and um, I couldn't really be a co-owner out here uh i couldn't do you know matt needed to be a sole proprietor and so that was a rearrangement i moved from being the chief executive officer to being um the bookkeeper here at quail springs as the best customer at island seed and feed we moved more produce than or more feed and 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 product than any other customer so two of the most immediate needs um at quail springs uh we're developing the food systems which needed water and developing shelter for the inhabitants um, not a very comfortable place to be in a tent it's very hot in the summer and very cold in the winter and the temperature can swing on any day of the calendar can swing over 50 degrees so uh certainly the element of of shelter was um was priority and we brought some folks in on the land who were natural builders B- building with natural materials. Um, it, it It's a broad, I mean, a, a log cabin or a stone house could be considered natural. building. You could
0: also like have hay bales, hay
1: bales or, or earthen cob.
0: So you brought these earth builders, in earthen here.
1: builders who had experience on, on building. And in particular, we had a workshop to build the house for Paul and Colmy out of cob, a cob structure, which is a, 12 or more inch thick earthen freeform. So instead of making adobe bricks and stacking them on a wall, you actually take the same material and and like a pinch pot in ceramics, apply that that wet cob to the top of the wall and and build uh roundish walls are stronger than straight walls.
0: So you start to build up these these cob houses, but um I'm wondering what the, the feds and the city are thinking of these structures.
1: We were um, very much um, aware that these structures would not be easily received by the building code officials at the county. The, the lawyers at the county will not allow the county to approve a building that they have any reason to think might cause liability to the county in the future. And the irony of it is the, the, the building code. Is there, is there an engineer who has put their stamp
0: on it? So to prove it to the feds, um, how do you find yourself in Texas?
1: Oh, well, we um, are working with a number of, of engineers and architects who are advancing or advocating for the, the, getting a code for this material. You would build a, st- a, a portion of a structure and then roll it into a kiln where they blast it with, with uh, um, fire for a certain number of hours, and then generally then try to extinguish and hit it with a fire hose. So the kind of the combination of, of cooking it really hot for a while and then dousing it with the water is, will give you a, a, a fire rating. Well, we would have to do this to get a, a fire code um, for Cobb. And it involved finding the laboratory, which isn't in California, it's in Texas. And then it took about eight months in Southern Humid Texas to get that cob to dry, and we discovered something: that the longer the cob wall is exposed to heat, the hotter it gets for the longer period of time, the more resistant it gets to the fire hose. Because of course it's vitrifying and turns towards brick.
0: So, long story short, the cob performs better than uh, like traditional methods. There
1: isn't any fireproof building material as inexpensive and accessible and fireproof as earth.
0: Where does this leave, you know, the state of your structures in the eyes of the law today? And what does also just, you know, the future of Quail Springs look like?
1: One of the biggest things that's happened, you know, during this sort of COVID era um, is that we're no longer running uh, as many open door programs uh, for kids and WIP or for schools or, or, or offering on-site residential permaculture design courses. We are still doing programming, but most of it is now online or off-site. So there's a certain uh, lack of child giggling, echoing through the canyon. Um, Truly something I miss. I I think this landscape has some amazing things to offer. And the important part for me as tending this land is, is making sure that it's accessible. And, and now we're kind of like trying to figure out what we're going to do program wise, because this is an experiential location. It's about being here.
0: And so looking back on on this, your, your story, your uh, uh, meanderings through life, uh, what would you say one of your biggest lessons has been What like something that you've learned that maybe you wish you could tell to your younger self or someone who maybe was on a similar path to you?
1: An important lesson in my life, and one I encourage people to, to hone the skill, is um, long and protracted observation. Pay a lot of attention to what's going on outside of your head because humans can make assumptions and create a universe within their thought patterns that may or may not reflect the environment that they're observing. We're really good at, at creating our own realities. And, and that's a wonderful skill set as well. It's like, don't, don't have someone else tell you what the world looks like. See it for yourself, but pay close attention to it. And I think Quail Springs has been able to uh, go through its various transitions by really um, observing what it is that it can do best.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
1: Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin.
0: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. With support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee Cannon. Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from
1: Sarah Hobson. Cherise Tan.
0: Harushi Kanauchi. Kristen Haglen. Aya Cortez. And Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth. Mickey Mukawa. Sylvie Wong. And Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang. Yao Liu. And Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.